Как ты должен быть голодным на звук нашего языка, Евгений Алексеевич? Wouldn't you love to hear Russian again? Imagine Pushkin, Lermontov, Tolstoy, Sosenitsyn, Aksenov. <laughs> Even then, always the sense of humor. History is strange, it's alien, and it won't give us what we would like to have. It's hour three of a Tuesday morning. Yes, it feels like a Monday because it's my first day back after the, uh, well, yours too, after the Labor Day holiday. I just took a Friday to go along with it. That was kind of nice. Nonetheless, Gatto's Tire and Auto Service bringing you this hour of the program. Headline at BillMick.com is the surveillance state. Just wrapped up talking about that at the conclusion of hour two. Anything you miss, of course, you can pick it up in the podcast section at BillMick.com and on the BillMick Live iHeartRadio channel. As we do on Tuesdays in this 8 o'clock hour, it's time for Dave Does History. Dave Bowman joining us from Silverdale, Washington. Gets up bright and early. He was up with us in the first hour this morning. Hey, Dave, you were up bright and early. Good morning, buddy. Yeah, it's it's just easier just to get up early than to wait. <laughs> well, I'm glad you do. Um, we're talking the Cold War today. What do you, what do you, you got know, in mind here, man? You're talking about this surveillance state. Boy, when you when you think Cold War era stuff, that's really where it kind of comes from, doesn't it? That whole mm-hmm. idea of surveilling people and keeping the eyes on stuff, and well, especially you in the sneaky service. Yes, yes. Which is kind of where I would start with this. Is you know, for me, the Cold War is very personal. Um, I grew up. I was born in '63, so I didn't catch the first you know 18 years of it. But I remember very well, Bill, in first grade at Ashley Elementary School in Denver, Colorado, doing duck and cover drills because we were convinced that if we just got under our desks, those H-bombs from the Soviets would somehow or another not get us. Well, especially after you stack the books in the windows, right? Right. I don't remember yeah. doing that, but but I do remember the duck and cover drills. I grew up in that era. I grew up with the um, – my father was a – hardcore Barry Goldwater guy. I mean, right. Yeah. And the, the famous ad now I was, you know, one, so I don't really remember it, but, but I've seen the ad about, you know, Barry Goldwater is going to destroy the world with nuclear war. And I remember later in the sixties with the little girl with the flower and then the nuclear bomb goes off and it was a, it was a strange time to grow up. And I, I you know, sometimes I struggle to explain it to my son because he lives in strange times too, but the Cold War was very hot for for those of us that grew up in that era. And then you get the Vietnam War going on. You get, you know, later Afghanistan's happening. You get, you get all these things happening. And, of course, I spent the last decade of the Cold War, from 81 to 91, uh, as you said, in the submarine fleet. And I don't I, – I do talk about this a lot, but not as much maybe as I should. But, you know, for, for four years there – from 83 to 87, when they talk about the finger that was on the button in, in the mid-80s, mm-hmm. that was my finger. It was my right finger. I was the one who, with the captain's permission, and of course, as directed by the National Command Authority, I'm the one that would push the button and the missile would fly. So, Was yeah. that tough to push that button in training? No. In training, no, it was easy. And, well, and you I, never had to push it in real life, so... 
Well, that's true. Uh, although there were a couple of occasions where we thought we were going to because the Cold War was much hard, hotter than people think about. And we don't even think about it today. Dave, did you have to pull a Crimson Tide? Come on. No, no. Okay. Don't don't even get me started on how bad that I know you is. hate that movie. Yeah. <laughs> but people forget how hot the Cold War was in the 80s. I mean, we had airliners being shot down. We had stuff going on. We had the nuclear cowboy in the White House. Uh, mm-hmm. There was... It was much hotter than people remember it, and it was very much a young man's game. At 23, I don't think I would have had any problem carrying out directives as I had been ordered to do so. At 60, it's a little different. You know, you look back at it and you go, I was much younger, and I didn't have as much invested in life at that point uh, to do those kinds of things. But the Cold War was something very familiar to me. It was very... um, much a part of my life. It still defines much of who I am. But sure. how did it start? What started the Cold War? Does anybody actually know where it started? I'm thinking you do. Well, I'm not naive, Bill. Where the Cold War actually starts is is a great story, but I'm not naive enough to believe that if it hadn't started there, it wouldn't have started somewhere else. But sure. for our purposes today... It starts with a baby that's crying. And we picked that up in 60 seconds on Bill McLive. Dave Bowman with us. Dave does history on Tuesdays on Bill McLive. Links to Dave's podcast and to his uh, history section posted for you at BillMick.com on the show page there today as well. A crying baby starts the Cold War, Dave? Well, we'll get there in just a, a minute or two. Okay. In... If you you trace back the history of this conflict, you got to go back really to the 1890s, the strains and stresses between communism, although in those days it was more called socialism than than communism, but the strain, the stress between communism and the Western liberal democracies. There were a lot of people uh, who believed that the assassination of William McKinley was an overt move by socialists, anarchists, whatever, to destroy the United States. And, of course, Teddy Roosevelt made a lot of of, um, hay on that. This struggle spills over. It spills over into World War I, where many people believe that the, the industrialist, liberal Western democracies were trying to use the war to crush the, the socialist movements amongst the masses. Into World War II, where you've got, you know, the Soviet Union now, allied with England and America. We're allies, but we're very, very, very suspicious of one another. In fact, Joseph Stalin and the Soviet Union will spend as much effort and indeed money spying on us as they do the Germans. I mean, with the Germans, they're just, you know, fighting them, so... Really, what do you need to know about them, where they are? That's pretty much it. But with us, they don't trust us. And so they're they're investing a lot of money in spying on us and on England at the same time. Well, we're doing the same thing. I mean, we're, we're, we're trusting them, but not trusting them completely. And one of the things that ends up happening in, in the 
40s, the early 40s during World War II, is across the Western democracies, England, Canada, United States, are the formation of these Soviet, whatever country you're in, Canada, Soviet, United States, Soviet, England, friendship societies, which are basically front groups for communist operations and spying groups. You know, I watched Oppenheimer over the weekend, and there's a lot of that element in that story as well. It, it was very interesting. Yeah, it's you talk about uh, spying and monitoring people and that kind of stuff, and and people are very. Um, the problem is we're allied with the Soviet Union, so you don't want to tick them off too much. And the other problem that they have, well, it's not really a problem. The United States and England can afford to pay for counter espionage activities. But then there's Canada, or otherwise known as America's hat. <laughs> Canada is one of those places where socialism, communism uh, flourishes, but at the same time, it's been made illegal. But now that you have these Soviet-Canadian friendship societies, it kind of loosens up. You end up with a new party, a new political party in Canada, that's actually communist, even though they don't call themselves that, and they start to win a few you know, seats in parliament here and there. And you have this relationship between Canada and the Soviet Union, but Canada doesn't really have the money to invest in counter-espionage. The Soviets know this, and they're kind of infiltrating Canada, figuring that if nothing else, they can start winning political elections and that sort of thing. In 1943, Russia sends a group of, um, they're called embassy staff, but of course they're what, what are known as GRU, uh, Soviet intelligence, to Canada. Their job is to operate the embassy there in Ottawa and to spy on Canada to see what they're up to because Canada, everybody thinks of Canada when you think about great missions during the Second World War that, that involve, you know, secret stuff. Canada is what leaps to mind, right? But Canada had a lot of information flowing through it, coming from both the United States and England. Some of that information relating to, as you mentioned, Oppenheimer and the Manhattan Project. The Canadians mm -hmm. were aware of it, even though they weren't directly involved, per se. These Embassy people are sent to Ottawa, where they are charged with both spying and, of course, operating the Soviet embassy there. And as usual in the Soviet Union, in the Soviet system, they tell them that they all have to live in the same place because that way they can spy on each other. But there's one guy who has a baby, a new baby, and the Soviet's boss there hates that baby that cries too much. And so he tells him, go live somewhere else. And that's the beginning. Dave Bowman with us. Dave does history, the uh, ignition of the Cold War, at least in uh, Canada. We'll talk about it coming up next on Bill McLeod.
Bowman joins us for our weekly dive into history. Pay attention, there will be a test. No, there won't be a test, but you will be held accountable. Bill Mick Live. Thanks, Victor Lyle. Yeah, it's Dave Does History on Bill Mick Live as we look at the inception of the Cold War. So, Dave, the Soviets are heavily engaged in Canada where there are socialist, if not communist, sympathizers. And then there's a little dissension in the Soviet ranks because of babies crying and keeping some general up somewhere. <laughs> yeah, we got a guy by the name of Igor Gozinko. Now, I don't know if you've ever read the book, The Cardinal of the Kremlin by Tom Clancy. Yes. It's yes. a great book. It's very, especially the first time you read it, it's very nerve wracking. But there's a lot of similarities between Igor Gozinko and uh, the guy that ends up being the spy in the Cardinal of the Kremlin. He's a very young man. He's in his early to mid-20s when the war breaks out. And like most young men in the Soviet Union, Igor expects to be you know, sent into the army. When he, gets, uh, when he gets into the army, he gets drafted. They look at him and they realize this guy is really technically smart. He's got some great math skills and the likes of that. We need him to learn how to be um, a cipher clerk in our in our embassies. So they teach him all of this higher mathematics. They teach him all of this coding, that kind of stuff. And they, they teach him to be a cipher operator, which is a very sensitive position. These are the people that actually code and decode messages that are being sent, uh, you know, from country to country, from embassy to embassy. So this is a very sensitive position. So that means he has to be not just uh, really smart, but he's got to be politically reliable because this is the Soviet Union and we don't trust anybody. We're constantly monitoring them and spying on each other. Well, much like uh, in the book, while he's in school in Moscow, he meets a, uh, a very beautiful young woman and they get married because they figure, well, it's the war, probably not going to survive. So we better start our life as quickly as we can. On the plus side, though, because he's a cipher clerk, he's not sent to the front lines. And in 1943, he is sent to Ottawa, Canada, to the embassy there, which, of course, as we know now, is a hotbed for spying both on Canada and the United States and for fomenting socialist counter-revolutionaries in, in the nation of Canada to try to turn Canada red, as they would say. He originally arrives there in 1943 with his boss, and they, they move into the embassy dwelling there, and everything's going great. A few months later, his wife finally arrives, and I would love to know the full story of how they got there, because... This is 1943. It's the height of the Battle of the Atlantic. You know, that's that's not an easy voyage to be made. When they get there, right after they get there, right after his wife arrives, they have their first baby is born. His name is Andre. Not that you care, but, you know, it's germane to the story. His name is Andre. And Andre is, he's not a, he's not a good baby. He's a very fussy baby. And he cries and screams and is just 
Oh, we've all we've all seen that one baby that's just annoying, right? Ben had his days, but they weren't that bad. So at, at the end of the day, this guy's baby is just loud and constant. And the guy who runs the embassy has a wife because I don't I'm not sure why this is, but people that are in charge, their wives almost always seem to be <laughs> really in charge, fussy. Right. And in charge. (laughs) And she hates, and I mean, hates this baby. Now, maybe there's some jealousy involved, maybe something, who knows. But she hates this baby. And so she leans on her husband, guy by the name of Zapato, and not Zapato, it starts with a Z, it doesn't really matter. She leans on her husband and says, you need to get them out of here. And so he pulls, he pulls Igor Gazenko aside and says, hey, look, your kid's too loud. You guys need to go rent an apartment somewhere. We'll pay for it, but you know, you got to go live somewhere else. And so Igor Gazinko and his wife end up in a in a huge apartment in downtown Ottawa that is nicer than anything they could ever even have dreamed of back in Moscow. And one of the things that he will later say is that his boss was constantly complaining about the way that the West somehow, you know, perverts good communists and they become capitalists. Well, one Mm -hmm. of the ways that happens is by giving them good, (laughs) good living conditions. And they have just accidentally done this with this guy who is a cipher clerk and a very top secret sensitive guy. They've just put him out on his own and said, live out here amongst the Canadians, but, but, but don't betray us. Well, you can pretty much guess how that's going to work out. So this guy, the Russians set him up in luxury accommodations, according to his standards anyway, and he's liking what he's seeing. He not only gets set up, Bill, he says later, the guy's name is Zapotin, uh, remarked that uh, living abroad spoiled Russians. It certainly spoiled Anna and me. That's what he said. In Ottawa, we had a comfortable apartment of our own. In Moscow, a place that size would have been shared by four or five families. Wow. Plus, they paid him $275 a month Canadian, but it was 1943, um, and, and put him out on his own, where he is able to walk amongst Canadians, live amongst Canadians. One of the things that he mentions is he talks to policemen in Canada, which you would never do back in Moscow. You, you just you, you can't do that. And he became very enamored with the Canadian way of life and the Canadian freedoms that they had. And he became very disillusioned with the idea that his country was trying to undermine all of that. And so he was toying with the idea of defecting. But the problem is the war is still going on. If he defects... Canada is likely to say no because we're allied with the Soviet Union and we don't want to create any political issues at this point. And somehow or another, it seems like the NKVD, the Soviet intelligence organization, seems to suspect him all of a sudden. And in early 1944, they order him back to the Soviet Union. You need to come home. Well, now he's thinking, well, maybe I should just walk now. Maybe I should walk across the border into the United States. Maybe I should just disappear. 
but he's scared because, you know, obviously he knows what's, what they're capable of. And so he's a little, little concerned about those kinds of things. Well, in the end, his boss, the guy that made him live out on his own, calls up his boss in the Soviet Union and says, hey, you can't take this guy away from me. He's my best cipher clerk. I need him. And so they delay his departure. And of course, the war takes its course. And finally, the war ends completely on September 2nd, 1945. Three days later, Igor Gazinko decides it's time to defect. Wow. Good timing for him. Alleviate some of his fears, I suppose. And we'll see where it all takes us. Where it led us to. With Dave Does History on Bill McLive, the Cold War in focus right here on 92.7 FM WMMB. We'll get to your calls, provided we've got time in our last segment. Live programming when a storm hits to the Stormwatch page on our website. WMMB is here before, during, and after the storm. It's Operation Stormwatch, brought to you by O'Galley Electric. Thanks, Victor Lyle. Three chances ahead of you today to win your way into the iHeartRadio Music Festival. It's a trip for two to Vegas, $1,000 gift card, ground transportation in Vegas between the airport and hotel. Uh, two nights stay and two nights tickets to the iHeartRadio Music Festival. Good luck. I'd love to see you win it. 9 a.m., 1 p.m., and 5 p.m. hours of our day-to-day. Gatto's Tire and Auto Service, our hour sponsor. As uh, we wrap up, Dave does history on Bill McLive. Dave Bowman with us. You want in, it's 321-768-1240. So this guy finally has the opportunity to defect. And uh, how's it come down, Dave? Well, He's nervous. You got to understand that. He he's nervous because he's in the GRU. He knows where all the spies are. He knows he knows who not to trust in Canada. But at the same time, he doesn't fully know because he he thinks maybe they've infiltrated some other place, but he knows that the government of Canada is infiltrated with communist spies. So he decides that he's going to go to the newspaper there in Ottawa. He grabs a briefcase. He's got all the all the proof of everything that's going on. And he walks into the newspaper office there in Ottawa, the Ottawa Journal, and asks to speak to the editor. The editor comes out and says, yeah, what can I do for you? And he panics and says, "Mm, nothing, and leaves. Now he doesn't know what to do. He wanders around Ottawa for most of the day, decides to go back to the newspaper. By the time he gets back, though, the editor is gone for the day. 
now he doesn't know what to do. So he goes home in a panic because surely he's being followed. Surely he's being watched. I mean, they got to know, right? Well, turns out that the Russians trust him, so they're not watching him. The next day he goes to the uh, Canadian government and asks for Canadian citizenship, asylum. They're not really sure what to do until he opens that briefcase and starts showing them that their government is completely riddled with communist spies. Now they decide, well, we better do something about this. They grant him Canadian citizenship, asylum, all those kinds of things. And in a very long and convoluted story, his testimony is over 6,000 pages. And it's not fully released until 1981. It leads to the arrest of 39 spies in Canada. 18 of them will be convicted. The shockwave is immense because if Canada is this infiltrated, how much are the other countries, England and the United States and France and all these other allied countries, how much are they infiltrated? And the international politics of this becomes very, very angry. And of course, this is what leads to the United States and Britain establishing agencies like the CIA and MI6, which are initially aimed at counterintelligence against the Soviets, who they now know because of what Gazinko has brought them, are riddled with all these spies. It's really the beginning of the, I don't like the term, but the Red Scare. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really the beginning of that, where they, they have to start digging through this stuff and, and figuring out who's a spy, who's not a spy. And as you said, even, even in Project, the Manhattan Project, they're starting to find all these Soviets, spies, who are sending information back to the Soviet Union. And it's all kicked off because Zapotin's wife decided she didn't like a crying baby and made them go live in Canada, go live out amongst the people in Canada and experience all that freedom and all that wonderfulness that, you know, compared to the Soviet Union just sucks. And it spoiled this guy and his wife, and they decided... Go try this freedom stuff and see how much you hate it, right? right? Yeah. And because they loved it so much, he defects and basically blows the whole thing open. And many people consider this to be the opening shot of the Cold War. We wrap it up and we continue in one minute right here with Dave Does History on Bill McLive. So a crying baby, Dave, has started the Cold War and now you've got a former Russian crypto guy, right, who has just cracked open a whole world of spying going on by the Soviets. It causes a lot of problems, Bill. His family back in the Soviet Union is basically tortured and or executed by the NKVD. His wife's family is destroyed. His boss, remember that guy with the wife that didn't like the crying baby? Yeah. They're forced to go back to the Soviet Union where he's imprisoned and Ooh. she is sent to the gulag and he ends up in the gulag and it it's a it's a mess. But at the same time he himself would say later on uh, Gazinko would later say, "Look, it had to be done because there was no other way to stop it. Somebody had to stand up and do it. It cost me my family, it cost me, you know, everything but but my wife and child, and, and but at the same time, it was a very brave stance. It did change the world in a lot of ways, and I think that's 
something to think about. These it starts this whole Cold War as as uh, Churchill will say later, the Iron Curtain will descend. The Cold War has begun. We're going to go through the arms race. We're going to go through deterrence. We're going to go through, for me, what is a very personal thing. The Cold War is very personal. And yet it's something that I'm very proud of what we did. But today I kind of wonder, was it even worth it? I mean, did we actually, did we actually win the Cold War? Looking around my country today... I'm not so sure anymore. I mean, there was a time when I was very certain about it, but now I look at what's happening and I go, was it, why did we even bother if we're just going to turn around and embrace these philosophies that we were fighting against anyway? And so I struggle with that. But at the same time, every time I hear a baby cry now, I think maybe that's where the whole thing started. Could very well be. Let's get to the phones. Line one, you're on with Dave Bowman on Bill Make Live. Good morning. Good morning. Awesome, awesome discussion. Hey, I believe that the communists, uh, the international, the communist international, the communists, the deep state, has actually succeeded in communizing Canada more so than they have succeeded in communizing America. But I think that basically we lost the Cold War in that sense. And I, I, I love your last comment that, uh, that, that basically confirms what I've thought for a number of years now. Thanks, Mario. Appreciate it. Dave, your thoughts there? Well, I'm not absolutely certain that we lost, but there there are times, Bill, when I really wonder because I see what's happening and, you know, I watch, like you, I mean, we're all in this business together. We watch what's happening in our country and we, you have to think, are, are these people just ignorant of what went on during all this stuff? But who knows? I it, it bothers me. It bothers me tremendously, and I struggle with it a great well, deal. Well, the question becomes, do we reinvigorate a sense of patriotism and what this country is supposed to be about, and, and can we get that fire started? The question for me, Bill, is during my time in the service, I buried two of my best friends. Mm-hmm. Was it worth it? I, I used to say yes. Today, I'm not so sure. That's sad. Line two, you're on Bill McLive. Good morning. Good morning. This is Mr. Bill from Melbourne. Yeah, Bill, what are you thinking today? I, I'm listening to Dave. I love his story. It's a great story. I'm just kind of wondering two things. How did his family end up in Canada? Hi, Andre, Andre, or whatever his name knows, the crime baby. How they're making their lives out in this free world. And the other one was, is this what's going on now with China? Good question. All right, Dave, what do you know so well, far? in the case of uh, Igor Gazenko, uh, he was very protective. He was put in uh, protective, you know, stuff. He, Witness he protection right, stuff. Right, wouldn't yeah. show his face, stuff like that. Uh, we know that he died in 1982. He's buried in an unmarked grave. And we don't really know anything about his family because they keep they, they kept it really, really close to the vest to protect them because of what the Soviets did to their families. So from that aspect of it, we assume that they they did very well. He was known to comment, uh, be very much a commentator on the Soviet Union and the Soviet system. And uh, to to hear him say, to hear him talk about things, to read the things that he wrote, you would definitely get the impression that he's like most defectors. He appreciated freedom. He appreciated uh, what he had been given, and he hated the Soviet system. Uh, but again, he's he's passed on uh, in 1982. All of his testimony was released in 1981, so 
there you go. As for China, well, we sure have a lot of politicians that seem tied to their coattails, don't we? Can we say fang fang? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, there there's obviously that stuff going on, some of it potentially here in Florida. And, and you can make the argument, look, supposedly we're friendly, but we're not. I mean, we were allies with the Soviets, but we weren't. So the problem with the, the Chinese, of course, is we're not headed to a Cold War with the Chinese. We're headed to a pretty hot war with the Chinese, and that's going to cost people's lives. Going to be something else. Dave, how did those events impact what you ended up doing in your career or others who were involved during the Cold War? What what other changes did it bring about? For me personally, I grew up distrusting the Russians, distrusting the Soviets, disliking mm. the Soviets. Sure. Um, and there was never any question in my mind. It wasn't until much later in my life when I started meeting actual Russians that my attitude kind of changed people who were not the government of the Soviet Union. And what I discovered was people are people wherever you go. And I met a lot of Soviet submariners, Bill. I'm going to ask you about that. Yeah. It's remarkable how similar we were in a lot of ways and how dedicated to our craft we were. Uh, but at the same time, I don't have a, I, I, I've never crossed the ideological line. I do not believe that socialism, communism is a better system by any stretch of the imagination. And socialism, communism had to be defeated. It was once. Who's going to fight them again? Who's going to take it up again? And I'm looking around the country going, I don't see anybody really rushing to the defense of Western liberal democracy against the communist idealism. In fact, a lot of it going quite the other direction. It's what bothers me. Bothers me a lot. Absolutely. As well it should. Dave Bowman, interesting story, how a crying baby got the Cold War thing started. That's very cool. It's a great story. I appreciate it. Yeah, and again, it probably would have started somewhere else, but but that's where it did start. So there you go. Any idea what we're looking at next week? Oh, God, I haven't looked that far ahead, man. You know how I work. Oh, I just <laughs> thought you might have a clue, but that's okay. Um, always something interesting and always something, a different way of looking at things. When you've got Dave Does History here on Bill McLeod. I want to say thank you to Gatto's Tire and Auto Service. They made the hour possible. Tomorrow, a wide open Wednesday. Bring anything you like to the table when you call us tomorrow, anytime. Most dangerous day in radio, wide open Wednesday. Hey, Dave? Yeah, I can't wait for that tomorrow. I know what's, <laughs> I know what's coming. Dave, thank you. I will see you next Tuesday. Have a great day.